We're starting off, though, talking about the ongoing gang violence. Uh, we know that Mike Farnworth in this province has been speaking with federal counterparts about what can be done to stop this uh, upswing in gang violence. Earlier today on Mornings with Simi, Kieran McConnell, who is a former gang officer and current lecturer at SFU and at KPU, talks about organized crime, uh, made this comment about sentencing and how uh, he thinks that's part of the problem. Well, this isn't a popular sentiment, but I think we have to look at our sentencing practices. Uh, One of the people that is involved in this conflict uh, not that long ago was involved in a high-speed pursuit with the police, was found with a loaded handgun, and they received a one-year sentence in prison. Um, I, I, I believe that if we had longer sentences for possession of illegal handguns, that that would make people think about having them in their cars and readily accessible. Let's bring in Wally Opal, a former judge as well, former Attorney General. Thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this today. Anytime. So what is your response when you hear someone say that a lot of the problem or a big part of the problem is sentencing? Well, I know that's a popular sentiment uh, to, to echo. I agree. But first of all, you know, what is happening now in the streets has been going on for 60, 70 years. We've always had this spell of gang violence when the various wars break out between the various factions. But uh, uh, I know Kieran McConnell and I respect him, but I think he's simplifying the problem. First of all, uh, anybody that's convicted of first degree murder gets an automatic life imprisonment with no parole for 25 years. So you can't blame that onto the courts first. And and at the moment, to my knowledge, there are no charges that have been laid uh, on any of these uh, killings that have taken place. The Americans have a system where they give long sentences to, uh, to uh, offenders with guns and people who get involved in crimes of violence. And uh, they're their uh, level of gang violence is larger than ever. So I don't think that's really the problem. The problem really is there aren't many of these cases that are before the courts. I know that you can always pick out an outstanding example like, like Kieran and said, well, and say, well, surely that sentence could have been longer and maybe it could have been, but the people who get involved in these types of crimes don't think of the legal consequences of getting caught. In fact, most of them are out there quite brazen, and they don't think they're ever going to get caught. And the the difficulty is that these crimes are very difficult for the police to investigate because there are very few people who come to the police to assist them in resolving gang violence. So I sympathize with the police in that they have a lack of real uh, knowledge given from them from the streets, and that, that makes it difficult. But but that longer sentences in and of themselves will not be the factor that will make our streets safer. So um, because the Americans have done that. Uh, But I think we have to get at some of the root causes of why all this is taking place. And uh, and that's not an easy question to answer as well. Uh, Why is it that so many people don't give a damn about what's going on and they get involved in these crimes of violence? We know that that people who are involved in criminal gangs in our province and elsewhere very seldom get past the age of 40 before they're gunned down. So those are issues that we have to bring home to the kids who get involved in this type of uh, of violence. The other thing is that 
Kieran made an excellent point where he said, where he compared the American system to ours, and uh, he said, by and large, the American uh, uh, scenario of gang violence takes place in the inner cities where there is a large amount of poverty, whereas that's not the case here. For instance, members of the Indo-Canadian community, that some of them who are involved in this uh, activity, largely come from middle-class families. So that's another complicating factor as to how this, uh, what's the origins of uh, what's taking place uh, in our streets. And to tell you, it's, uh, it's alarming to all of us, particularly when brazen shootings take place of the type that uh, took place out at the airport. Uh, I was the Attorney General in 2007 when we had the Surrey 6, and two completely innocent people were killed at that time who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. So, as a police will tell you, there's no easy, simple answers to this. Maybe we need better enforcement, but again, uh, that may not be the answer either, because the people who get involved in this don't give a damn about public safety, and they don't get a damn give a damn about getting caught or the legal consequences that can result from uh, arrest and conviction. But is there not something to be said about a lack of, of consequence? And I'm looking at the one case that has to do with the shooting that took place in Burnaby. And it was announced yesterday that a 20-year-old, uh, Ahmed Tahir, was arrested and he was charged with killing 19-year-old Tony Delipi. Uh, and then if we look at his background, uh, he was already facing drug trafficking and weapons charges related to another incident in Burnaby. He had been charged in July of 2019. So that's only a couple of years ago, he'd been charged with attempted murder, uh, but that charge was stayed. People will hear that and say, how can someone be charged with attempted murder two years ago and be out on the streets? Okay, well, the answer to that appears to be that if the charge was stayed, that indicates to me that the police and the Crown decided there was not enough evidence to prosecute him. So that's probably the answer to that. Uh, I don't know that all the factors involved, but you know, the judges have to listen to both sides. One of the issues here usually is that why is somebody out in the street when he's facing charges? Well, under the laws, Canadian laws, under the criminal code, the judges have to release people who are charged if they do not, if there's a possibility that they won't appear for their trial or there's a substantial likelihood that the person will commit further offenses if, uh, if that person is released. So the law is militated towards releasing people who are innocent of any crime doing at that at criminal activity at that time. So the judges have to release them unless the prosecution can show that they will not appear for trial or there's a substantial likelihood that they'll con- commit further offenses while on release. What about the number of times we hear about people who are arrested or, or people who are who are pulled over in, in, as part of an investigation? And we talk, I mean, even Surrey RCMP put out a release earlier today uh, saying that somebody had been uh, caught with a loaded gun, a loaded firearm in the vehicle. I mean, that's a federal crime. Does that not come with a sentence of two years plus a day that somebody could be put away for just for being caught with that? That's a good point. Absolutely. Uh, but the first thing you have to do if you find someone in a car with a loaded gun, is to arrest that person, charge that person, and convict them. And at that stage, uh, the judge has a duty to do what's appropriate in the circumstances. But, uh, you know, I hear these 
stories about police stopping people with guns. And uh, if that's the case, then it's the duty of the police to arrest that person and get that person off the streets. What are your thoughts on, uh, I, I think Bill Blair was tweeting earlier today uh, saying he had a good conversation uh, about what's happening here and that they're, they're putting all of the resources against this. Like you said, you were the Attorney General uh, when the Surrey 6 happened. Uh, here we are, 10 shootings in a number of days. What do we do? Well, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of faith uh, in Bill, Bill Blair. I've known him for many years. Uh, I think that uh, they have to come up with some kind of a strategy. Uh, what is happening now uh, is apparently not working. I think prevention is a long-term solution, but that doesn't help the public who are now alarmed of what's going on in the streets. So we have to come up with some kind of better solution when it comes to intelligence. Clearly, the police know who the perpetrators are. The police know uh, who's on their radar, and the police know uh, who's involved in this type of criminal activity. And uh, But they need to have the evidence before they can charge and before any convictions can result. Uh, you need the evidence. As I said a moment ago, these cases are very difficult to, uh, to prosecute because the police don't get a lot of help from the people out in the public who know who's involved. There are people out there now know who the killers were that uh, of, of the incident out at the airport. Mm-hmm. And I think those people have a duty to go to the police and to help the police in these circumstances. The police need our help, and that's a good starting point. All right. Wally Opal, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much. Always great to have you on the show. Always good to be with you, Jill. Thanks so much for being with us. Earlier today, the B.C. government introduced legislation to bring in three days of of paid sick leave uh, related to COVID-19, such as having symptoms, self-isolating, having to wait for a test result. Uh, This will mean employers will be required to pay workers their full wages up to $200 per day, and the B.C. government uh, will pay their full wages. The BC government will then reimburse employers without an existing sick leave program up to $200 per day for each worker. This leave is good for workers, good for businesses, and will help our economy recover faster. At the same time, we know that many businesses are also struggling to survive. That's why the new COVID-19 paid sick leave will include problems reimbursing businesses up to $200 per day per employee. Employers will be required to pay their workers their their regular wages and government will reimburse them up to $200 a day per worker. That was MLA Harry Baines talking about this earlier as well. Let's bring in Gavin McGarrigal, Western Regional Director with Unifor. Gavin, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, happy to be here. I know this is something Unifor or something similar to this, something Unifor has been calling for and pushing for. Uh, What's your response to what was announced today? Well, it's a good first step. Uh, Concerned about the COVID part of it, but the real news today from our perspective is we finally saw the government announce that they're moving toward permanent paid sick days. Uh, In our view, they've uh, stepped up to offer some support to employers right now while clearly serving notice. Uh, you know, that this is something that's going to be done. Uh, we wish they had put a number on it. We think the number uh, three days to, uh, announced today is inadequate. It doesn't cover the full isolation period, uh, but it's certainly a step in the right direction. We're going to continue to be vocal uh, to pushing them to uh, to make the program do what it needs to do, which ultimately is is that people need to stay home if they're sick. And if that means 14 days, it means 14 days. It needs to be seamless. 
uh, it needs to be transparent and um you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure they hit that today, frankly. Uh, Minister Harry Baines, who we just heard from, uh, also went on to explain, saying uh, part of the reason that three days were chosen was because uh, you could self-isolate. You could likely get a test result in that amount of time, and if you did have to stay, or if you were home for a full 14 days, you would then switch over to the federal government program. Uh, do you think that's enough? Well, I think anything that makes it more complicated for workers is more likely for them to say, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to go back into work or I'm going to take that chance. And we see comparable jurisdictions that are now moving forward on paid sick days for longer periods of time. Um, you know, uh, we think that, you know, it simply needs to be seamless. You need to be able to call up your employer and take whatever time is needed during this pandemic. We're a year into this now. We've seen doctors and epidemiologists, and you know, a whole spectrum uh, of Canadians calling for this. And so, again, it's a step in the right direction today. Uh, we hope that, um, you know, they'll take another look at, at uh, these factors. Uh, and certainly, you know, we'll be very vocal in the consultation period leading uh, up to the end of the year. But by January 1, uh, 2022, they have uh, a chance to uh, to put in these permanent paid sick days far more robust. We were calling for 14 days during the pandemic, Jill, and we were also calling for seven uh, paid permanent sick days. Uh, only Quebec and PEI have uh, have three sick days, and I think we can do a little bit better than uh, than that here in British Columbia, especially because of the, the harsh lessons that this pandemic has taught us. Uh, do you think there might be any pushback, though, or any questions of this? If we're talking about the numbers, and I've seen anything from 50 to 60% of workers in BC who don't have paid sick days at this point. This is only for uh, workers who don't have paid sick days through their company. Is it possible we could have companies coming forward, though, and saying, well, wait a minute, why are these companies being reimbursed up to $200 a day? Why shouldn't that be across the board? Well, this is uh, the problems that the government is going to have to answer within the business community. What I've seen is a general reluctance within the business community to have to shoulder really any costs. We know, of course, a lot of businesses are struggling right now, but really this is a moral obligation that they have to their employees uh, and to the community that we're serving. So, you know, they need to step up a little bit more uh, instead of just pointing the finger all the time. Uh, at the end of the day, the government's trying to get aid to, to the businesses that need it the most. Uh, it's not the most elegant of solution, uh, but it's a step in the right direction. We're happy to see uh, them moving forward with something. Uh, it should have been done uh, much sooner. It should have been done broader, but at least we're moving uh, in the right direction. And, uh, and I think that's something to celebrate today. Uh, do you have any concerns? Uh, you mentioned that the process needs to be seamless. This is a process where the worker will continue being paid by the company. The company then, I think, has to apply to WorkSafe BC. WorkSafe BC is going to set up and administer the employer reimbursement program on behalf of the province. Uh, to me, it seems like there's a lot of moving parts and that could lead to delays. Absolutely. Uh, it could lead to delays. I mean, the worker just wants to have that transactional relationship with their employer. I'm sick. And then the paycheck is the same. You know, we were, we were interviewing a, a young intern just a few days ago, and uh, she was she was telling us how in her in her part-time job, she had to take four days off for the flu. And she didn't think it was a big deal at the time, but when she got her paycheck, it was a huge gap. So the paycheck needs to be uninterrupted. Uh, you know, the government and the employer and the WCB, I guess, will work out on the back end, uh, but the pay needs to be interrupted. And that's where 
you start to see the problems with this because what happens if that worker's used up that three days and now they're having to navigate uh, trying to dovetail with the federal program or trying to suddenly become an expert uh, on CERB and all of the different things. And as we've seen, many workplaces, you know, they may not test positive for COVID, uh, but their workplace is getting shut down because of a number of incidents of COVID. So people may be sitting at home for the 10-day period trying to navigate this out. And uh, so again, is that make it more likely that people are going to want to take risks, uh, not go home, not stay home for the full period? Uh, Anything that complicates it uh, increases that risk. Uh, And once we get kind of past where the focus is is mainly on COVID-19 and it's about having symptoms, uh, having to self-isolate and and wait for test results, once we're uh, to a place where the conversation is really more focused on permanent paid sick days, because uh, we're being told now, I mean, we've been told throughout this pandemic, it's not only uh, if you think you have COVID-19 that the days of coming to work sick are done. That's not supposed to happen anymore. Uh, Do you think there's going to be pressure on workers to prove uh, that they're sick or uh, that, it, that in, there would be cases where employers are, are reluctant to, to grant sick day or question it? Yeah, I mean, we see that every day. Um, you know, we are out there on the front lines in many different industries dealing uh, with employers, and these kinds of questions come up every day. I mean, obviously, we're from a unionized environment, so we have elected workers within the work site that can actually help amplify that voice. But, yeah, you can be sure that there will be... Um, you know, a lot of confusion out there. There will be a lot of employers that are, are trying to, to get out of it. I, I just heard, uh, for instance, uh, you know, even with vaccination leave in Alberta, one of one of our members was just telling us that an employer was trying to say that this program was better and they'd have to use some other days for that. And then going back to say, well, wait, we're not supposed to lose any pay. So it will get complicated. Uh, workers need to have their voice heard. And, and that's why the simpler, the better. Uh, make it very clear uh, and make it cover the required period. And at the same time as well, there have been a lot of small businesses, especially that have been absolutely slammed by this pandemic and many have closed. Many are struggling and not sure how much longer than that, that they can go on. They, too, would have legitimate concerns. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no no discounting the impact that this pandemic has had on all of us. And certainly we've seen over the past year, the federal government and this government step up in many, many ways. A lot of the discussion, though, really has been around supports to business, you know, grants and numbers of things. And, you know, we don't necessarily quibble with supports because we've seen, uh, obviously, the businesses employ workers. But when we've seen uh, about topics and, and things that directly impact workers' bottom line, we've seen this reluctance and this foot dragging and this, you know, uh, failure, frankly, to move as fast as is needed. Uh, you know, I served on the Tourism Task Force uh, last year uh, from September to December. We went around and did virtual consultations with the entire industry, came forward, made recommendations to double $50 million to $100 million, and the government was able to move on that by the end of the year. That was within a three-month period last fall. So, you know, that's why we're questioning these long, dragged-out uh, periods. Uh, we know that businesses need aid, but we know, and the doctors are telling us, that workers need aid. And we're at that point in the pandemic where we absolutely have to do better by working people. All right, Gavin McGarrigal, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time. Yes, thanks very much.
Well, yesterday on the program, if you were listening, you know we were talking with the BC Civil Liberties Association and asking them if they had any concerns with new intersection cameras that have been set up in several intersections in Richmond. The goal is to help with car crash investigations if law enforcement needs to have access to that footage. Here's a little of what Megan McDermott said about their potential concerns when it comes to those cameras. We certainly had concerns at the BCCLA just about that use of it, um, making it available for sale. Now that the cameras have been installed, they're at so many intersections now, I think it would be very difficult for people who did want to remain anonymous um, to make their way through their city uh, without being captured on these cameras. And when I see screenshots from them, they actually have quite extensive information, not just of the people Um, traveling in the vehicles, but the people just walking along, pedestrians, cyclists. um, You can see quite a lot of, um, in in a lot of contexts, I think would be identifying information about the people. So whenever our privacy is um, compromised um, majorly in this situation, um, we have concerns. Well, joining me now on the line is the mayor of Richmond, Malcolm Brody. Mayor Brody, thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon, Joe. What was the the reasoning behind going ahead with putting in these intersection cameras at so many intersections in Richmond? Uh, well, first of all, we're uh, we've got them installed and getting them operational in 110 intersections, and we plan to carry out the program. And the hope is to get it to all 175 intersection major intersections. Uh, the idea is. Uh, that uh, it will, they will be of use in terms of uh, traffic safety programs, uh, managing uh, traffic flows, and those sorts of things. When we went to the privacy commissioner over, and by the way, I, I have a major disagreement here with them, but what they said is you, you can't use this for surveillance you can't use this before something happens uh, to, as a preventive measure. Uh, it's only for analysis after the fact, or if you get there in time, you could use it to monitor an active situation. Now, the, the major failing of it, uh, and this was imposed by the Privacy Commissioner, is that you cannot, uh, the, the definition on the pictures was not high enough so that you can actively identify people in the pictures, uh, nor can you identify license numbers. Uh, And to me, this this is a major shortcoming that's been imposed on us. As far as I'm concerned, if you're in a public place, you know, if you don't want, if you don't want to be seen or heard from, don't go to a public place. But if you're in a public place, which a street is a public place, uh, to install these cameras and then not have it high definition enough, uh, at least arguably, that you could use it in court uh, as, as evidence, uh, it, it really does detract from the value of it. Take, take for instance, uh, uh, the bad guys at the airport shooting it out. And so surely we want to trace the travel of the getaway vehicle uh, that eventually was shooting at the police. We want to be able to 
trace the path of that vehicle in a way that can prove something. Uh, so I, I think this is a major shortcoming. I do not agree with uh, the little clip that you just played. Um, and it's just a matter of perspective. Right. So originally then, was the definition to be such that you could see license plates and you could see uh, other uh, other factors that would identify uh, vehicles and such? Yeah. Yeah. Originally, it was just they were simply cameras. And uh, it wasn't until we got to the privacy commissioner that all these limitations were imposed on us. And, uh, you know, it, it sparked extensive conversations and uh, uh, differences of opinion, shall we say. Um, what do you say then to uh, what you heard in that clip? Uh, two concerns there. One uh, being privacy, that, that even though and somebody, I'm looking at the, the website right now so I can see all of the intersections, I can click on, on the still photos. Uh, one, it would be difficult, uh, Megan McDermott saying it would be difficult for somebody who if they didn't want to be on one of these cameras to find another route that they couldn't uh, get to, to their destination. Uh, she was also concerned saying that they thought in the very beginning there was some initiative or some uh, thing that the city of Richmond might be selling this footage um to the last point we are selling the footage in the sense that if a member of the the public the images are stored for 30 days so anybody who wants a particular clip can pay a small fee and get a picture you know a copy of that uh so for instance if you're in a fender bender at an intersection uh you can get a copy of that and it would help you out uh, or ICBC can get a copy of it, and it would help uh, with the reconstruction of exactly what happened at that intersection. So, but to charge three hundred and seventy-five dollars for a clip on a, a system that costs just to, to put it in costs over two million dollars. I don't think that that's a a, a very difficult uh, fee to pay. And secondly. You know, if you don't want to be seen on a road, then don't go on the road. Uh, I think it's just that simple. And, and yes, I think that there should be some controls so that they can't be used for a, some kind of a negative purpose, uh, some underhanded purpose. Uh, you know, you don't want members of organized crime getting video footage so that they can trace their friends or, or something like that. But just... Just to find out what's going on in your road, I go back to the example of the shoot 'em up that happened just the other day, and I think that that those cameras could be a major factor in sorting out exactly what happened there, where poli- people were literally shooting bullets at the police, and it's just amazing uh, that uh, nobody was hurt uh, from that exchange. So looking at where the cameras are, these intersections going all the way to the airport. So what's the process then uh, with police officers, with investigators who are who are trying to solve that case? Uh, What is the application process they have to go through to get that footage from the city of Richmond? It's managed by the city. It's not going to be managed by the RCMP. So they have to come to the city and there's a, a very quick process and they will be given Uh, you know, a copy of the relevant part of the journey. It's just that simple. So it's, it's not some kind of a court application, but 
But frankly, if if your concern is is privacy and you need more controls, I'm not adverse to that to say, okay, uh, you have to have a court order to get the materials. But what I I am saying is if we're going to video people or video incidents, let's make it of a high quality so that it really is useful. It can be controlled in many, many different ways. Uh, and, And just to say, well, you know, you you're in an intersection and you have this right to privacy. Uh, I think that only goes so far. But you could understand, too, why somebody might be hearing this and think, OK, I, I get that. And maybe take some comfort in the fact that it doesn't it's not a, such a high definition that it identifies people that maybe I just want to walk to Lansdowne Mall and I don't want to be on, on three cameras on my way there. Does that person have a right to privacy? If you want to walk on a public street um, and you want to walk to the store, first of all, nobody's interested. And secondly, uh, if there is some criminal activity going on, I think there's, there's a right to have a picture of it. Does it, does it then amount to a large surveillance system for the city of Richmond? No, that's exactly what it doesn't do. It's not a surveillance system because it's, it's so approximate in what it shows. It's, only, it's not going to show the license plate numbers, and it's not going to be high definition enough to show faces or identifiable faces either. So it's not to be a surveillance system. It's not to be a deterrent. What it is is for reconstruction, for constructive purposes of of uh, looking at road safety and intersection safety and programs and that sort of thing. So I think it's good as far as it goes. I think it it simply could go a lot farther. Right. So when you talk about like traffic safety, it could lead to, say, we're seeing one intersection where there's a, a large number of crashes. It could lead to some change there to stop that. But it's not going to lead to, uh, say, a court case. So it's not going to be used as evidence in a court case in, in an investigation on who caused the crash, say, because somebody could just say, well, you can't see the license plate and you can't see my face. So you can't prove that was me. That is my fear. That is my fear that, that it, it, it goes only so far in telling you what has happened. And, um, you know, in maybe the large, vast majority of cases, that's going to be plenty. That will be quite enough. But it could be a matter of, of great consequences to what happened. And, uh, you know, if the best you can say, well, it was a, uh, a black SUV, uh, and we can't identify it any further, uh, you know, what's that going to do? And what about all the, what about all the uh, commercial cameras, the video cameras that are in, say, in the restaurants and in the, the various businesses? There's no such restriction on those. So, you know, why is, why is there this limitation on what is in the public system? I agree there should be full controls. I agree that it shouldn't be used for a negative purpose or an underhanded purpose. But I don't see why the privacy commissioner has put these stumbling blocks to make to reduce the usefulness of the entire system in such a, a very significant way. So do you feel like the city has spent $2 million on a system that isn't even going to do what you had hoped it will do? 
Well, I don't think that it's I don't think it's a perfect system. I still think it's a pretty good system, and I think that it will have ma- major benefits. And you know, the benefit is not to uh, you know wait for the the bad guy to come along and uh, prove it. I mean, the major benefit, regardless of the system, is going to be for what we can use it for for the programs, for the road safety, for the analysis. Uh, uh, you know, congestion uh, documentation, that sort of thing. I think it'll be very useful for that. It's just, you know, if it's a very good system, it could have been excellent. All right. Uh, Mayor Brody, we'll leave it there for today, but I do appreciate you making the time for us today. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Anytime, Joe. Thank you. Well, you might be hearing that song and seeing that dance a whole lot more in the city of Delta. That city, the council, has unanimously given the green light for people to be allowed to bring in the backyard chickens. It went to a public hearing and was passed. Uh, This came after a resident submitted a petition, had almost a thousand names on it, in support of a pilot project that would see people be able to do just that, have some backyard chickens. So what does this plan look like and are there any concerns? Well, joining me now to talk more about this is Lois Jackson, former mayor, current Delta City Councillor. Lois Jackson, thank you so much for being here. You're most welcome. It's a pleasure. Uh, well, what are your thoughts on that? I, I'll tell you, first off, I was surprised this wasn't already a thing in Delta, giving its agricultural uh-huh. roots. But what are your thoughts on this now This now being allowed? Well, I'm, I'm glad we're, we're going to be doing this. We tried a few years ago, and there were a lot of people in opposition from the kind of the urban areas. And uh, so it didn't go ahead then. But this time they've come forward. We've had great support from many, many people, and uh, so we're going to we're going to do a trial on it. Uh, it's not unusual. Most other communities do have backyard chicken regulations, and uh, you're right. Delta, with its heritage in um, steeped in agriculture, still is. And uh, so, you know, we're gonna we're gonna take the farm to the to the urbanites and. Uh, Hopefully it'll be a good education tool for the children and mom and dad and maybe some seniors might get involved as a hobby, you know. Uh, So what are the rules then if somebody wants to go ahead and start up having chickens in the backyard? Well, there's uh, quite, uh, it is quite onerous when you come down to it. It shouldn't be taken lightly, Jill, because, you know, you are dealing with animals. Uh, there can be concerns by neighbors, for instance, if, if perhaps you're not as uh, vigilant as you should be looking after your animals. Um, you have to know how to care for them. Uh, you have to have a coop. Uh, build a coop for them, and there's specifications for that uh, at our hall, um, uh, you know, an outside area plus an inside area. Um, you can only have four uh, chickens. Um, you should have at least two because they're, you know, they're kind of a social animal, and to just have one uh, would be, I think, detrimental. Uh, so we're we're hoping that the, it would be minimum of two, maximum of four. Um, obviously, you have to have licenses and uh, uh, permits, and and uh, to make sure that the checks and balances are there for those that don't have a farming background, if I can use that way. Right. Uh, d- does your yard have to be a certain size or in a, p- uh, a specific location to be allowed to do this? Not really, but you do have to have uh, a space for a coop. 
Um, and uh, it's got to be, I think it's got to be uh, maximum six feet high. Uh, it's got to be three feet from the property line, so you're not impinging upon that space between you and your neighbor. Um, and it can be as large as 100 and so square feet, but that has to include an outside area as well. So uh, th- there's a lot of there's a lot of intricacies here, but all the information, of course, we do have at the hall, and and uh, you know you have to register them, and and you have to now British Columbia government is also requiring everyone register their animals, uh, farm animals, with them. So that's another balance for those that may have a concern. Uh, are you concerned at all that sometimes people, as you put it, that maybe don't have an agricultural background might uh-huh. over-romanticize what it's like to have chickens? And I ask that from mm-hmm. a place of, I grew up on a farm, we had chickens, uh, it, was, uh, it was a big deal, we had a big chicken coop. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a lot of work. It is a lot of work, and I don't minimize it, you know. I mean, we kind of chuckle about it a little bit, but you really do have to make a commitment because... You have to, you know, clean out the pens every day. You have to feed them every day. You have to take care of them every day. And um, they can't look after themselves. So it it shouldn't be taken lightly. Um, It is a wonderful opportunity if you take it on as a a real long-term project. Um, I know a, a lot of people are looking forward to it because they have the inclination and the desire um, to commit the time, you know, to to the uh, chickens, and uh, I I know that you're aware of you know the commitment that you've got to go out and feed them every day and look after them because you you've lived that yourself. Um, so, uh, you know, it's uh, it's something I think people are really looking forward to, but I do want to caution them that it's it's not like you know the the, the great adage at Christmas time. You get your children a puppy, and then you know the thing is, <laughs> the poor little puppy really isn't looked after very well. You know that right. ad that you get on TV, but so you have to be very aware and careful, and make sure that you are going to make a big commitment for it. Uh, are you concerned at all that people will do this as well? And my guess is, uh, far beyond just having chickens in the backyard, people are going to be doing this for the added benefit of you get eggs that are laid by chickens, and that's a great thing for people. Uh, yeah. But chickens stop laying eggs after a couple of mm-hmm. years. And is there the possibility there's going to be all of these unwanted chickens? Well, that is something that we discussed uh, at length at the uh, Agricultural Committee. And yes, there has to be a way of your uh, euthanizing them or, or, you know, using the meat. Uh, and, and it teaches children that, you know, meat does come from somewhere. It's not just in the grocery store. Uh, and so, you know, there there are those um, uh, requirements and uh, uh, you know, I think we're, we're just going to have to see how it goes. It's going to be a trial. We're going to look at it within a year to make sure that we've um, that we've got it right. And uh, we do have bylaw enforcement officers, et cetera, that will be going um, to inspect and make sure that things are the way they should be. But there is no doubt, as you know, I, I think I think you get what four years out of a laying hen. Um, somewhere in that neighborhood, um, that but then you right. have to be able to um, then you have to be able to to take care of it 
um, just as a as a roaming animal and on your yard or you know in in, in the coop or um, you have to dispose of it and certainly that those all that information is available at the hall. Yeah, the the, the phrase "take care of it" often means something different on yeah. the farm. <laughs> Well, like I'm not squeamish about it. You know, uh, I worked on my grandfather's farm many, many summers and, uh, you know, to be kind of uh, abrupt about it, a lot of people find it difficult to deal with. But, you know, you chop their heads off or wring their necks and you clean them and eat them. Um, or you can keep them as a pet, or you can um, arrange to take them uh, to a place where they will euthanize them and take care of them for you. Right. Um, I'm guessing uh, roosters are a no-no. Roosters are a no-no. Not everybody wants to get up at 5 o'clock like, <laughs> like farmers do. <laughs> and, and what about concerns if neighbours uh, suddenly uh, start seeing a lot more rats around? Uh, we know mm-hmm. they're attracted to chicken coops, uh, to the food, or if there's, mm-hmm. uh, say, somebody's not cleaning it as much as they should and there's a, uh, you're having a, a barbecue in your backyard and all you can smell is the chicken coop next door. Yes, and we've got bylaw enforcement to, to make sure that people are adhering to the rules. It, it, it's not like a, you know, an, an untidy premises or a broken fence or something. Like you're dealing with animals and uh, they're going to be there and they're going to take care of business for, for the neighbors. Um, I think that was the biggest uh, concern that anyone had when they were coming forward in opposition to it was the fact that there may be rodents, there may be smell, there may be noise. And this is why, you know, I guard against people just running, you know, helter-skelter into this as a hobby because there is a huge responsibility to your neighbors and uh, you've got to make sure that you don't have any rodents and know how to, to deal with that. And uh, also, you know, ensure that you're uh, taking the manure and properly composting it and um, frequently uh, so that there isn't any of these uh, problems or, quite frankly, you know, you won't have them. We'll, we'll probably just, you know, uh, make arrangements for, for you either to, to clean it up or take it down. All right. And I understand then this program, uh, after a year, it's going to go under review to see how things are going? Yes, yes. We're going to catalog everything at the uh, department level, and uh, at the end of the year, we'll see how um, how it's gone, and um, hopefully it will be successful. It seems to be successful in, in all the other municipalities and cities um, uh, without, um, you know, a great deal of problem, and so we're just hoping that that will be the case here as well. All right, so we will check back in with you on this, I'm sure. Uh, Councillor Jackson, thanks so much for your time. You're most welcome. It's been a great day. Thank you. Well, anybody who has moved anytime, well, anytime really, if it was recent, you're probably still dealing with the stress of it. Maybe you have things in boxes you still can't find. Uh, add a pandemic onto that, it can make it even more stressful. And then you also have to worry about people potentially scamming you. Well, our show contributor, John Jang, takes a look at all of that to, to celebrate May as Moving Month. Uh, John is here now with that story. Hey, good afternoon, Jill. It's moving month and I'm seeing a lot of moving trucks on the roads these days and I get it. 
Summer's around the corner. Maybe you want to move out of that dark basement suite, get into a high-rise apartment near the beach. Now, whatever it is, with more people moving, this is also an excellent opportunity for scammers and thieves to strike. To talk more about this, Carla Laird, the Senior Manager of Media and Communications with the Better Business Bureau, joins us now. Carla, what are some of the most common moving scams that people need to know about? You're right. The season is ripe for moving and May is actually moving month. And so with that, we are seeing a huge increase in not even just people moving, but consumer inquiries from a local standpoint of persons trying to search for local movers. In fact, I think we have received over 5,500 consumer inquiries from our BBB platform from consumers in April. So everyone has been getting ready and anticipating this season. But as you rightfully said, scams are out there. And one of the more common ones that we tend to see is where there are fly by night movers and these guys anticipate that it's moving season some of them just get a truck that they own whether or not you know they even have any moving experience and the aim is to just capitalize on the 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 demand that's going to be coming into the season and so they'll put up an ad most times on some form of social media or platform or website and we've seen it on facebook marketplace we've seen it on craigslist and what tends to happen is they give you a really attractive price in the ad and all you have to do is either send money in advance or you know make some kind of payment that they've um authorized or approved or instructed and at the end of the day they either take your money promise to turn up on moving day and you never actually see them and their ad disappears and you never hear from them again or it's a case where they they turn up with the truck two guys no branded clothing no bland, no branded truck and Ultimately, you are putting your items at risk by giving it to them to move with the hope that it turns up at its destination without any damage or any kind of problems. And we have also seen worst case scenarios where they take your your items, promise to meet you at the destination, and you're there hoping to see the truck and they never arrive. Oh, I can't imagine how frustrating and heartbreaking that must be, especially if you have some valuable things that you store away, thinking that, you know, you get excited to move. It's a new home, a new opportunity. And then the worst case scenario happens like this. And I'm sure it's probably very tricky to sort of track down those uh, those thieves, Carla, because like you say, they delete the posting. They probably delete their Facebook account. They get rid of all evidence online. And so you're just kind of stuck there without any real leads to move forward with. And that is exactly the situation that many of the movers that um, the moving victims that have reported to us on BBB Scam Tracker have shared. They try to they send us the link that or to the website to the URL that they were on when they made that arrangement. We've checked it; it's no longer working. The website has disappeared. All the information on it is false in the first place. We've seen as recent as last week where a consumer reported that they were. They literally hired someone to move for them, but the address for that company is actually a stolen address for another legitimate moving company. So you would go there thinking you're speaking to whoever it is that you hired, but it turns out this company is a completely different um, moving company altogether. So they are very sophisticated in their strategies, and that's what makes it challenging to really even detect them or find them once the scam is complete. 
Oh, man, I, that's uh, very sneaky. I'll have to put it that way. Just very sneaky. And I also know right now, Carla, of course, we're not out of the pandemic just yet. We're still going through the third wave. And moving in the middle of a pandemic like this is probably very different. So what kind of tips would you suggest for people that might not have done this before over the past year, but are going to be moving soon and want to be safe uh, while COVID-19 is still a threat? That's actually a very good point. And moving in its sense, in, in its entirety on a whole is actually a very stressful process. You're taking everything you've owned. You're trying to decipher what you want to take with you to your new location. And then the process of moving altogether can be really stressful. If you have children, it's even a bigger issue. And then, of course, you add a pandemic to that where you now have to take into consideration your health the safety of the movers, the safety of everyone helping to get the job done on the day. And so as a starting point, one of the main tips some of our accredited movers have pointed out is making sure that when you do pack all of your items, you're putting them in a specific space that reduces the amount of traffic in your old home as you get ready to move out on the day. So basically, find a space that's as close to the door as possible. And many people tend to, if they have a garage space, they tend to store the boxes there where you just open the garage door, the movers come in, they take the items without having to walk through your home. And that way, it reduces traffic and it also reduces the spread of COVID-19 as best as possible. Another thing you can try as well is if you have the facility to um, give them a specific washroom. So if you can dedicate a special space to your mover so they where they can sanitize, wash their hands, even use the washroom if they need to. There's a space dedicated to them so it reduces the amount of co-mingling that's taking place on moving day. And it's difficult and it will be difficult because you're probably going to need help to, to, to lift appliances, to lift furniture, but as best as possible, make sure you're implementing and, and, and enforcing COVID-19 protocols. So everyone should be wearing their masks. Everyone should try to be as socially distanced as best as possible. If you can get other family members to take care of the kids for the day to reduce having to watch kids run around or have them running around at the same time while you're moving, it will help significantly. But I think where the big tip in preventing any kind of confusion starts is in your research process for the business in the first place. So, and that would be making sure that you are asking the necessary questions in terms of how they're going to be enforcing COVID-19 safety protocols on the job. And that can actually help you to determine if you are going to be picking the right company to help you on move day. She is Carla Laird. She is the Senior Manager of Media and Communications with the Better Business Bureau. Carla, appreciate you giving us some time here today. Thank you so much and take care.